When we started Friendly Fire, we naively assumed our audience would dutifully watch the movies along with us every week. We only started adding intros once we realized that a majority of our listeners weren't watching the films before they listened to the show, and might have needed a little synopsis before we just dove right in. The intros gradually expanded to include some additional context to films that may have been unfamiliar, and then we added some color commentary and some thematic backstory, maybe a little sassafras, a little banjo picking, a little rhetorical fallacy, and eventually they morphed into a pitch reel for an animated comedy series we're making for History Channel After Dark called Dank Skipper and His Two Woke Gilligans. But Inglorious Bastards doesn't need any thematic backstory or rhetorical fallacy. It has all that and more contained within. In fact, to try to set the stage for this movie would be like sweeping the sidewalk in advance of a major sewage explosion. Tarantino alternate universe World War II doesn't bear any resemblance to actual World War II. In fact, he had no reason to set this movie in World War II at all, except that's where Hitler lives. And Hitler has become a kind of fictional character for most people, embodying evil. And he's got that funny mustache. And it's easier to put all the things you hate inside Hitler than it is to lay them out on the table and look at them. Tarantino could have used his prodigious imagination like he did in the old days when Mr. Pink didn't tip and the gimp lived in a footlocker. And he could have made a movie about a really bad contemporary guy who does unspeakable things and gets revenge killed by his victims. And maybe that would have been actually interesting and made us reflect on our morals and think hard about human nature. But that would have been challenging. So rather than write a whole interesting script, he chose to kill cartoon Nazis and a Hitler mannequin in order to provide schadenfreude for uninteresting people. Well, enough about me. In case you haven't seen the movie, I'm going to walk you through the plot so you don't get lost. It's a long movie, but a short path. Our movie opens with Hans Landa, played by the great Christoph Waltz, drinking a glass of milk and talking to a French farmer about life, the universe, and everything. Now this is where we meet our heroine, Shosana. It is a very tense scene, and it makes you think that maybe you have lucked out and are at the beginning of a masterpiece. Then Brad Pitt arrives. Now he is an officer and he puts together a unit of soldiers to go fight the war with unconventional tactics. This unit is special because all the soldiers are Jewish, except for Brad Pitt. It is never addressed why they could not find a Jewish officer to lead this unit. Maybe there were mm, no qualified Jews? Of all the officers in the American army in alternate universe 1940s, I'm sure no one was more qualified to lead a group of Jewish revenge commandos than fake North Carolina Brad Pitt. Anyway, they call themselves the Inglorious Bastards because there's an Italian war movie from 1978 by that same name, which was a shabby remake of The Dirty Dozen, and Tarantino obviously saw that movie 20 times when he was working at the video store, so he had his heroes call themselves that because he thought it sounded cool, and this is his shabby remake of The Dirty Dozen. It's not a remake of the Italian movie Inglorious Bastards, he just stole the title, but he misspelled it. Because he really can just do whatever the hell he wants and get away with it. Well, anyway, those Jewish commandos, they scalp Nazis. That's their thing, which is another cool move that Tarantino always wanted to put into a movie, and then did. After lots of killing Nazis and other plot and stuff, we come to a climactic scene where Shoshana Dreyfus, the strong female lead from the beginning, kills 
a bunch of Nazis, and the Inglorious Bastards are also there killing Nazis. And the war, I guess, is won in 1944 when they kill Hitler, meaning that the war ends with the Western Allies on the beaches of Normandy and the Soviets on the verge of taking back Ukraine and Belarus, meaning the war ends with both Allied armies about equidistant from Berlin on opposite sides of the European continent. Now, this is a fascinating idea. Well, no way would the Soviet army stop at Warsaw just because Hitler was dead and the Germans waved the white flag. And if the Russians kept marching to Berlin, even if the Germans surrendered, well, what did the Americans and British do? Well, surely they raced to Berlin too. Do those armies clash? Does World War III start here? I mean, Tarantino afforded himself plenty of time to tell this story. The movie is two and a half hours long. And although it's mostly cheeky violence and callow dialogue, it feels five hours long. Still, we're left with more questions than answers. We're going to give you something you can't take off on today's Friendly Fire as we discuss the 2009 Quentin Tarantino revisionist history film, Inglorious Bastards. Welcome to Friendly Fire, the war movie show that puts all of the rotten eggs of podcasting in one basket. I'm Ben Harrison. I'm Adam Pranica. And I'm John Roderick. Is this a war movie show? When did you change that line? Well, because I wanted to say podcasting and I didn't want to say podcast two times in the same sentence. Oh, I see. I see. The war it's movie show. It's a show. show. Yeah. Is, it, is it not a show? It's the war movie show that podcasting podcasting. <laughs> That should be a that should be a bumper sticker. <laughs> yeah, look out look out for that great selling piece of merch coming to the Max Fun store. Doesn't really say anything about us or our podcast. It's going to look great on an enamel pin. <laughs> Don't blame me, I voted for podcast. <laughs> I saw a great bumper sticker today that just said, honk if you like death and dying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> really, uh, really did it for me. It's been a long time since I laughed out loud at a bumper sticker. <laughs> if you truly like those things, I bet you just lay on the horn. Yeah. yeah. And you don't get off of it. You see Robert Bring it Smith. on. Robert Smith from The Cure just like, <laughs> <laughs> waving, flashing his lights. <laughs> Speaking of death and dying, it is uh, depicted quite a bit in this movie, movie that we watched today. Yes. It's it's less a movie about war and movie, more a movie about movies. I can't talk today. What the hell? It's less a movie about war and more a movie about movies. Oh, I like yeah. that review. It's like uh, if Cinema Paradiso was made by a sociopath. Boy, you are just full of quips. Yeah, have you got three by five cards uh, going there? What's the next one say? <laughs> Do you have a, I, a, a model studio behind you that you're just no. flinging these into after you say them? I mean, we watched, we watched, we were going to record this episode over a week ago, and uh, instead we had an important business meeting uh, when we were going to record. So I've had a lot of time to marinate on this, and I'm a couple of cups of coffee into my morning now. Mm. Uh, that's just uh, that's just what was in the chamber. That's just Ben Harrison being Ben Harrison. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, with with slightly fewer apologies. I think. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yes, well, let me start off by saying <laughs> that one thing I am trying very hard to learn in doing this show with you guys is trying to learn how to appreciate things that are bad. <laughs> and that's something we excel at. Yeah, it is. And 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 I think something that a lot of people do and a lot of people get a lot more enjoyment out of media than I do because they're not worried about whether or not it's bad. And when I saw this movie in theaters, I was infuriated. I I I stood up to leave. Wow. Four or five times and then sat back down because mostly because the two old man things in me that are competing, <laughs> one of them is out, constant outrage at how terrible things are and the other is total frugality and inability to yeah. to walk out on an $8 investment. Also, gravity is just such a powerful force, well, that's right? That's true, too. And I had half a thing of popcorn. John, can I propose yeah. a sidecar podcast project with you where we do uh, a run of films that you like? It's it's just a three-episode series. <laughs> <laughs> three films that you've ever loved. <laughs> no one would be interested in hearing me talk about it, the, the things that I loved. But watching it this time and conscious of a few things, conscious of the Sicario problem, where, uh -huh. a, where a really good film, I could not get over the fact that it was bad. <laughs> and if I could have gotten over the fact that it was bad, the the film is great. The rest of the film is great. And I, I really reflected on that a lot after our show. But also a lot of these movies. And so I didn't hate it this time. I watched it and did not did not feel the same sense of outrage. Wow. Well, speaking of the first time you watched it, uh, I'm curious... Uh, to know what you guys knew about this movie before you saw it the first time. Nothing. I knew it was a Quentin Tino, Quentin Tino movie about <laughs> World War II. <laughs> that's, what the, uh, that's what the Spanish call him. Uh -huh. Quentin Tino movie about World War II starring Brad Pitt. Yeah. Adam, did you know like much of the premise going in? I think what I knew was that it was going to be a revisionist history revenge film by Quentin Tarantino. The revisionist history revenge aspect of it was a total surprise to me when, when me too. I saw it. Me too. You went in thinking that this was going to be pseudo-factual? Yes. Whoa. A caper. A caper movie set within World War II. That must have been yeah. really incredible yeah. when the bullets started flying toward the end. Well, it really, the beginning. It really was. <laughs> I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute. An embedded team of Jewish commandos <laughs> dropped behind enemy lines, famous throughout Nazi Germany as like... Nazi killers? Yeah, you could call them the air team. <laughs> <laughs> Was that oh, on a 3x5 card? Adam pulled his cards out. <laughs> we he's, all have uh, cards. I don't he's, have cards. He's flinging them back at the set of New York City that he's sitting in front of. <laughs> no, sadly, I have like half, half of a uh, sausage and cheese sandwich. That's what I'm referring to. That's where I'm getting my quips. <laughs> my quips are sausage and cheesy. Mm. Yeah, the uh, so I'm such... A bozo about history that I was like, maybe this is a real story that I just didn't know. Like that's that's where I was when I sat down in the movie theater, and that was part of what enraged me was the possibility that somebody like Ben Harrison would think, <laughs> "Oh, this is an interesting story." I wonder why I haven't heard more about this incredible group of commandos. 
it's a, it's admissions like that that really inspire the one star reviews on Apple Podcasts. <laughs> oh, you're talking about the one star reviews, not the ones that are like John Roderick is the worst guy I've ever heard, but the ones that are like Ben Harrison needs to read a book. <laughs> well, yeah, that you know the one star reviews tend to follow like three formulas. One is John Roderick is the worst. One is Ben and Adam are the worst, and and the third is. This is just a terrible show. When I've never Full seen stop. a single one of those, I think it's all—it's <laughs> all from categories A and B. Yeah, I think those are the dominant categories for sure. Yeah, but every once in a while, there's one that's just like, "This is full stop, a terrible podcast." Yeah, and then they deploy a group of commandos that are specifically trained to target and kill us. <laughs> <laughs> if you're thinking about going on and leaving a review like that on a on a review site, let me discourage you from doing that. Just 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 wander off into your own little forest and leave yeah. us alone. Nobody wants to hear from you. John will find you. John being the bear Jew. I am the of bear Jew. Podcast. I'm the bear Jew of this <laughs> podcast. Of this podcast and of this country at this time. But in but in his context it's B A R E and he's sitting in a, a bathtub. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sitting in a bathtub with like three bear cubs. <laughs> <laughs> bringing me bringing me coffee on a silver tray. Well, this movie historically uh may not have anything to do with reality. The um the performances are all incredible. I mean, I maybe there are a couple that don't quite work for me, but I um, I, I wish I could communicate Adam's facial expression when you use the word incredible. <laughs> he he immediately took on the posture of Rodin's thinker. <laughs> One hand under the chin, staring off into kind of toward the ground. I I agree with you almost ninety percent, Ben. Here is the here's the ten percent. It's that Christoph Waltz is so incredible in this movie that to not have an actor on that same level, I think, makes it incredibly hard. And in, and I'm talking specifically about Brad Pitt, like. He is so cartoonish in his performance that I think it diminishes Christoph Waltz, Waltz's excellence in this film in an unfortunate way. He is, Christoph Waltz is awesome, and I, I wish there were less Brad Pitt because of it. I think a lot about this first scene where Christoph Waltz comes into the house and it's uh, Denis Menoche, the uh, farmer who is sheltering a Jewish family, uh, talking to him and Waltz is drinking the milk and like it's such an electric scene like they're like Menoche is great against Waltz uh, and I agree with you that that Brad Pitt makes it much more cartoonish and weird than than uh, it needs to be but that like that there's so much electricity in that first scene it, it's utterly gripping I also sort of wonder though like you know watching this movie now when Nazism is is like back on the on the cultural landscape in a way that it didn't feel like it was in this movie. I wonder how much the monologue that Waltz goes off on like encourages that kind of thinking. Explain. I mean, he's he's obviously a sociopath, but I don't think that but he's like he's also like incredibly charismatic and like fun to watch and he's saying some of the vilest kinds of things that Nazis say about Jews in the scene, but it's in some way, I worry, attractive to the wrong kind of person. I don't know. That's just speculation on my part. I've never heard anybody like say like, well, I got into Nazism because of 
how much I like Christoph Waltz in the first part of Inglorious Bastards. Oh, you haven't? We no. haven't been going to some of the same meetings that I have. Some of the yeah, same have, pr- Proud Boy meetings that I've been I, hosting in my home. I haven't been spending as much time on 8chan as you. <laughs> the thing I was most curious about when I rewatched this was whether or not that first 15 minutes was going to affect me the same way that it did the first time I saw it. because And that was part of why I was so infuriated by the movie. Because walking into the theater and being introduced to Christoph Waltz, an actor... I and I presume most of us had never seen before and this scene which was so pregnant with with um with energy and so well done from a filmmaking perspective and as as it unfolded sitting in the theater you know like gripping my box of junior mints <laughs> I was thinking it's a junior mint <laughs> I was thinking uh Quentin Tarantino is the genius of our age. This is going to be the wildest ride I've ever been on. This movie has so much. I mean, this is such a a dimension beyond. And it works throughout the scene. There's never a a bad note. And then the rest of then the rest of the movie comes in and it's like, oh, this is this is Quentin Tino trying to do the dirty dozen, except he doesn't have Lee Marvin. And it's also like a fanfic. Like it's not uh, the movie. The movie completely went off the rails. But this this vignette, it's like the it's like the first three minutes of up where there's a there's a scene that's so affecting. You know what I'm talking about at the beginning of up where Mm -hmm. you get to the end of that that uh, little silent feature at the beginning and you're just devastated. There's no way the rest of the movie could follow. Yeah. And, And up's pretty good. So, is that one of the three films you like? No, it's not a war movie, and I won't. I won't, will not let you guys put it on this podcast. <laughs> um, it's kind but, of a war on squirrels, right? From the dog's perspective. Yeah, actually. Let's, so it's let's on go the list. It, let's go with it's that. on the list. <laughs> uh, but it does. I mean, he is Christoph Waltz is so above and beyond throughout. Through, every time he's on the scene, you feel his menace. You feel how how delightful he is, but how you, I mean, he's, he's communicating to you that he knows so much more than he's letting on. He's got that big pipe confidence. He, he, <laughs> he really does. And he's like, oh, oh, the one thing where he pulls out the pipe at the beginning is the, that's the one foreshadowing of how the rest of the movie is going to go. Yeah. We're like, what did, was that <laughs> seriously? And then, and I, and I thought it was a good gag. Yeah. But then I realized, oh, the rest of the movie is that gag, is the big type <laughs> gag. Uh, but but yeah, how do you, I mean, it is his film and really it is, the whole film just orbits around him like the sun. You're right, Adam, that there's nothing, not only is there no other actor up to it, but there's no other character written as well. Mm-hmm. Um, all the other characters, I mean, he is like the, he's the consummate Nazi He's the consummate beautiful Nazi and played, I think to what your to your point, Ben, he's played so captivatingly. And that's a thing that most films don't dare do. Nazis are made beautiful in a lot of films. Right. But it's like it's evil beauty. It's evil beauty. They aren't made so freaking sexy and so like so dangerous. You just feel you feel he's a Venus flytrap and we're all the flies. 
Oh, there's yeah. my three by five card. Damn. I, I sincerely hope Rob's is uh, dropping in the uh, glass crashing sound effects from the Letterman program. <laughs> you could argue that he's the only one who has that kind of beauty, though. If this was a film populated by nothing but beautiful, charismatic Nazis, that may be more of a problem than the the twisted and ugly Goebbels figure. Yeah, you know, like every every other Nazi's cartoonish, including Hitler. Yeah, there are some, I mean, that SS guy that's that's drinking with them in the bar and gradually trying to figure out, like, what's going on. Yeah. He's a he's a, a charismatic Nazi. He's a little, he has that, like, sweaty upper lip Nazi thing going on. <laughs> yeah. But he's, you know, he's not, uh, he's not. He's a Shatner Nazi. He's a little bit of Shatner Nazi. <laughs> I mean, he's not, the, he's not the only beautiful person in the film, right? Uh, Melanie Laurent yeah. is also, like, um, you, you can't take your eyes off her as an actor. It's just yep. that her character is written. It's sort of it's much more a two note character than than uh, waltzes. And yet, like this film is about her character, right? Like she's supposed to be at the center, and yet someone like Christoph Waltz takes the film from that. Well, it's supposed to be about her at the center, but the on second viewing. I realized the commando mission to blow up the theater never makes contact with her, never coordinates with her at all. Yeah. She's operating as a rogue. They are, um, they're on their own mission to do the exact same thing. And in the end, the theater could not have burned down successfully without both the commando team and her. And yet she and the commando team never acknowledge. Right. All this crazy other stuff, like she's burning down the theater and suddenly two dudes appear in the balcony just machine gunning everybody. Where did they come from? <laughs> she never acknowledges it. She's never like, oh, thanks. <laughs> she's like, hey, uh, how about an exfiltration? That was great of you. And those guys with the machine guns, they stand up and start machine gunning. But the theater's already on fire. And there was this weird film that played that said, you are all going to die. The two teams don't have that moment where it would have been so easy to slip in where they're just like, huh? To tie the two completely different films together. Well, that's uh, proximate to a moment of pedantry that I wanted to bring up. Uh, of course, people complain about inaccuracies in films all over the internet. I always like to pull one and uh, quote it on the show. Uh, and this one is that uh, Hitler and the rest of the Central Command were not, in fact, immolated in a theater fire in Paris. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> Thus ending the war. <laughs> the greatest moment of pedantry. Is there a... Uh... Is there a person responsible for that citation? Like, we should recognize them. Yeah, we should. Uh, no, I just wrote that as oh, a bit. Okay. Oh, okay. right. <laughs> Another three by five card from Ben. Wow. <laughs> oh. A lot of three by five cards in this uh, in this review. Well, yeah, because we had two whole weeks after we watched it. I spent that two weeks forgetting that we had watched it, and I sent you guys an email last night going, what's the film worth for this week? <laughs> hey, uh, I'm gearing up for my customary 2.30 a.m. film watch. <laughs> what's it going to be, fellas? I don't know if you want to break this film apart into its acts, 
but I think we should. The scene that comes after this first one is representative of the problem that we were discussing before, which is like, how do you follow this great performance and all of this tension, like crosscut right into Brad Pitt, like battered and chicken fried Brad Pitt. (laughs) Well, so I, so I, I read up on this movie because I was trying to figure out what the hell I was watching. Um, I didn't hate it as much the second time. I, I don't even think I hated it. I watched it as a popcorn movie the second time. And actually, I'm, I, I wanted to say in my little soliloquy at the beginning, like, I'm grateful to you guys for gradually sort of showing me the light about how I could watch a movie like this and not have to write an angry letter to the newspaper. First of all, <laughs> newspapers don't print angry letters from old men about movies anymore. No. Um, they used That's to. That's another thing you're angry about. I am. I mean, no wonder the newspaper industry is dying, right? That's what people want to read. Well, they do. They used to, at least. <laughs> um, so I discovered that that Tarantino worked on this script for years and years and wanted it to be all these different things. And he considered it his magnum opus. And um, he made other films in between. He was working on this and then he, you know, he couldn't he couldn't figure it out. And so he made other movies and he kept adding more. And I, and I feel like if a creative person is working on their magnum opus for years and the scale of the project gets smaller and smaller as they work on it, then they're probably making a work of genius. If they work on their magnum opus for years and the scale just keeps increasing and increasing and increasing, what they're working on is their inglorious bastards. Wow. Roderick's precept. Because what you have here is he started off saying, I want to make the Dirty Dozen. He obviously loves the Dirty Dozen because Brad Pitt is 100% playing Lee Marvin, mm-hmm. except not as well. It's all in the hat angle. You know? It's the hat it just angle. Isn't there. And he's got, you know. Brad Pitt is less willing to punch a woman in real life. <laughs> but well, the time to his change. credit. <laughs> yeah. But you know, that, that, uh, that hanging scar on Brad Pitt's neck is meant to tell us his entire backstory, which it doesn't, right? Like he comes in and, and we, have, we, have a, a, we have 40 minutes of the Dirty Dozen where Lee Marvin is establishing that all these guys are murderers, that they're all condemned to die, that he is, uh, that he is a badass who wears his hat all the way down on the bridge of his nose, and he's going to whip these guys into shape or die trying. And all of that is condensed into Brad Pitt's strangulation scar. Boy, I had a, when this movie came out, my landlord at the time was a, an incredibly mean lady named Mrs. Lee, and she had that exact scar. What? She was just like this old mean lady, so you, you would never ask her about it. Some kind of European accent. I don't, I don't know and where she, she was from originally. She had rope burns on her neck? She had like a garret scar, yeah. Whoa. I think that I would have found a way. I think I'm making sure my rent's paid on time. Yeah. I lived on the ground floor of a building in Brooklyn and like one day we had to call one night we had to call the police because there was a guy tapping a knife against the window and like asking us to come out so that he could cut us up. Hmm. And and we called the police on Did this you? guy. <laughs> yeah. Well, I I went out. My girlfriend at the time did not, but um uh and that's why she's now my wife. <laughs> 
the police took this guy away and you know he was obviously uh having a really rough night but uh like he had he had left a bunch of knife scars in the uh mosquito screen on the window and she was there like a couple of weeks later looking at something else and i was like oh by the way also the mosquito screen on this window needs to be replaced a guy like cut it up with a knife and she asked about it and i said yeah like we called the police and they took care of it and she just like laid into me for not telling her that a police incident had happened on her property and she was like the meanest angriest person i've ever met so you know that was like an average interaction with her so i wasn't like gonna be like yeah well uh i figured didn't want to bother you by the way uh about that scar Everything you need to know about Ben Harrison is contained in that story <laughs> because he expresses sympathy for the man with a knife. He does. That was his, you know, he must have been having a really rough night. Yeah. The man to him, a knife the enemy her, is the landlord. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he came from a broken home, but this property owner needs, needs to go to rehabilitation jail. I don't know if you guys know this, but history is the story of class struggle. Hmm. His story. His hmm. story. Genghis Khan? That's how he's near. You know, I really love the Dirty Dozen comparison here, but I think it's interesting that Quentin Tarantino is an avowed enthusiast for black American culture, and he puts the Jim Brown character with, uh, with Shoshana instead of making him a part of of the revenge crew. Right. And that's not, I mean, that's not true of the Dirty Dozen. Yeah. What I was trying to get at was that the ungainliness of this movie, I think, is the product of him working on it for 10 years and continuing to add ingredients long past the point that he should have been starting to take ingredients away. Mm. I don't feel like the revisionist angle was uh, was true of the movie in its inception. I think he was trying to make a World War II caper film. And I had this discussion on on our Facebook page with a guy because we referred to Inglorious Bastards in the context of another movie. And we made some comments about Inglorious Bastards, and I think probably I did. And he said, Well, what's the difference between this movie and the Dirty Dozen? Like why would you why would you shit on Inglorious Bastards but love the Dirty Dozen? And the difference is that The Dirty Dozen is a caper movie that happens within World War II. The outcome of The Dirty Dozen does not change the outcome of World War II. They, they burn down that chalet full of Nazis, but, and we are left to wonder whether the war would have lasted another 10 years, but the war as it actually transpired, we're, we're allowed to keep it, right? And this right. was just an adventure within it. Whereas... This Inglorious Bastards, as you said earlier, Ben, um, it ends the war a year early. It ends the war a year early, and that last year of the war was was where the Holocaust killed the majority of the victims. Right. Right. So it ends the war, war early, and what saves the lives of three million Jews, and we're just left to twist on that in our little in our little guts. And I think all of that came later, because because it shows the signs of being a movie where Brad Pitt is like, come on, let's go kill some Germans. And it's just a, it's just something we follow them until they find their Nazi gold and the credits roll. Right. And little by little, he's like, Oh, what if I put in a scene about 
like a, a girl who survived and then she has a theater. Whoa, what if she burned the theater down? Whoa, what if Hitler was there? You know, it's just like, it just feel, it felt like a 10 year old writing a script. Yeah, but a 10 year old could never write dialogue this good. <laughs> the second act is when we get to meet the rest of the bastards. It's not just Brad Pitt and his 11 herbs and spices. <laughs> <laughs> We get to uh, we get to meet some interesting characters here. There's Hugo Stiglitz, who is ex SS. Mm-hmm. He's he's a interesting character. He was busted out of, of prison before he was going to be executed. Interesting one note character. I think a lot of the bastards are one note, <laughs> but I mean, I think you could make the case that uh, Dirty Dozen portrayed its dozen in a similar fashion. I think so. Although, don't you? I mean, because because each one of the dirty dozen, we spent a little time in the jail cell with them. Yeah, we found out what they were accused of. You know, we went through that whole process of getting to know them. We saw them on their early adventure, kind of in their prison camp. Like everybody had so much exposition of who they were before the final mission. And these guys like stayed one note. It was like this guy's the big Jew. That guy's the kind of Jewy one. This one over here is the one that's on the office. Like, there wasn't enough time to also get the 30 other ideas that Tarantino wanted in his movie. Right. I think the one main idea that I got from this scene is that Quentin Tarantino loves Eli Roth and would do anything for him. And so he turns Eli Roth into uh, Donnie Donowitz who is uh, the bear Jew, <sighs> the aforementioned bear Jew, who is jacked and and baseball bat carrying. He gets to demonstrate his interests and skills out on a random SS guy that they've put down to his knees. Why do you think that Tarantino loves this actor? It's understood that they're friends, oh, like professionally. Person. Oh, I see. Okay. Like they're friends and friendly. There's really no... <laughs> There's really no reason to cast Eli Roth in this scene but for his relationship to Quentin Tarantino. I think when people talk about reasons to dislike Inglorious Bastards, many people say it's Eli Roth. Oh, how could Eli Roth shoots to the top of the list for me because he has the worst performance in the movie by a country mile. And yet, if you're talking about uh, the feeling of catharsis toward the end of the film, he is the character that gets to feel that most like he is the guy that experiences the ultimate revisionist history moment shooting hitler in the face yeah and so i and so i don't hate him for that like the look on his face during that scene i think it's impossible not to feel great in that moment even though it's Eli what? Roth. Are you serious? It is very possible not to feel great in that moment. That's a couple acts from now. Maybe we'll <laughs> interrogate that further when we get there. But, I, he, uh, he did not stand out to me as better or worse than anyone else. I'm curious that you guys both p- pick him out as like as the worst thing in the film. I, I don't believe that. Oh. I just understand that to be a common criticism. But Ben, you his performance is squirm-worthy. Yeah, I just, I, I don't buy it for a second. Um, you know, and I, I just, I, I really don't like Eli Roth's vibe at all. I don't like any of his work. I don't like his, wow. the, the films he's directed, and I don't like his acting. I Like the set, like in the scene where Brad Pitt is just announcing the premise of the movie to the, to the squad as they're lined up in the courtyard there, it just cuts to Eli Roth a couple of times as he like wordlessly smirks. 
And I fucking hate him in that scene. Like, if it's possible to make Brad Pitt's performance any cartoonier, you do it by cutting away to Eli Roth smirking at it. Did you come into this film already hating Eli Roth, and that is the reason for this? Like, I feel like in a vacuum, Eli Roth does fine here. I think that this may have been the film that made me hate Eli Roth. That's cool, that's cool. Um, I guess I'm going to smoke all this weed by myself then. Uh, on his uh, Wikipedia page, it says, to fund his early films uh, in college, he worked as an online cyber sex operator for Penthouse Magazine, posing <laughs> as a woman. <laughs> that okay. is awesome. He's kind of cool. <laughs> uh, so anyway, you're you're running down the list of all the actors that were... Uh, yeah, and this is also a scene that cross-cuts between the Bastards and Hitler, and I think this offers an interesting counterpoint to the charismatic SS officer officer of uh, Christoph Waltz. We get, like, the flimsy vanity of a fascist dictator in this scene, a, a leader who is motivated more by emotion than intelligence, who's having a cartoonish fresco being painted <laughs> behind him, like, as he's yelling at his underlings like he's an idiot well They're, yeah but well adam it's not precisely a fresco because to to paint a fresco obviously you paint on still wet plaster uh, i believe this is just a a large size portrait ben, ben is uh, is correct here mm-hmm. and so i'm afraid that i'm gonna have to rule against your <laughs> giant jack off motion that you were making while he was uh, but the thing about the portrayal of hitler we've seen several portrayals of hitler now or at least a couple And this one was basically, I mean, the only reason that Mel Brooks didn't play Hitler in this movie is probably that Tarantino couldn't get him Mm. because he had the resources to get a good Hitler in there. He did. This is a choice. Yeah. And he got this like, uh, you You could have had Bruno Gans. I could have had Bruno Gans. But what he got was this like summer stock theater (laughs) Hitler and, and all, and everything he attended Hitler with in the movie, uh, and all of the big Nazis, it's just it's just blazing saddles, but done without any of Mel Brooks's panache. So, and it's also like slamming up against Brad Pitt, who's not being funny, who arguably cannot be funny. Brad Pitt, his biggest failures are his comedic turns, L- leaving aside his terrible German accent in Seven Years in Tibet, which is the worst thing ever in film. <laughs> That's comedy, right? The worst moment in all of cinema is that entire film. Wow. While he tries to speak in a German accent, which he should have just not done. He was kind of funny as the loser stoner guy in uh, True Romance. Was he funny? Yeah, but or that was, was pre-Brad Pitt, Brad Pitt. Yeah, that's true. I mean, he's like he's like louche and and uh, and cool in Ocean's Eleven, but not funny. He's, yeah, he seems fun if yeah. you were like if you were drinking with him. Right, a lot of things that aren't jokes done in the tone of jokes. Yeah, but so that's what's weird about the movie, right? If you're going to have Mel Brooks as Hitler, if it's, if you're going to make space balls over here. <laughs> <laughs> and you're and you're going to make you know maybe the most affecting 12 minutes of film about Nazi hunters or about Jew hunters in France at the beginning of the movie like there're just so many it's just grinding gears that first hitler scene smash cuts to an ecu of a knife going in between the 
uh, skull and the top of the head of a of a Nazi. Oh, the like scalping. The, the scalping, and it's like super duper realistic, utterly gory, disgusting shot. Like it, it is really stomach churning. Like I was attempting to eat a pork chop, and I had to uh, shove my plate away oh, when uh, when when this scene came on. And that's such a startling. You know, Blazing Saddles doesn't have a a gruesome gory scene like this you know it does not for good reason it's neither fish nor fowl if it has that and perhaps this movie is neither if the goal of the film is to like reach that end point of ultimate catharsis like do you need don't you need that level of brutality on the way there what is that catharsis like to desire to shoot hitler in the face to see hitler shot in the face what is that desire? I do not think of that as a mature desire or a mature catharsis. Like catharsis requires, I think, a little more for the viewer to truly feel it. This, it, this didn't happen, right? So if we were making a movie about Ben Harrison's landlady, Mrs. <laughs> and we get to the end of the movie and Mrs. is beheaded, or a man comes in and taps on her window with a knife and she comes out and says, this is my property, and he stabs her or whatever. A.K.A. the hero of the movie, the and guy it, with the knife. And it turns out to be Ben Harrison <laughs> acting <laughs> acting as a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde character, not realizing that it was his bad childhood that made him into a murderer. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> Whoa. Like, you can get catharsis in dispatching an evil character without needing that evil character to be Hitler. Like it's just too, it's beyond cartoon. It's into. It's Star Wars. But yeah, but, but it's because it's beyond Star Wars because Darth Vader is a Hitler proxy, but it's okay in, in fantasy to have a Hitler proxy, but your Hitler proxy can't be Hitler also. You can't have Hitler be his own proxy because Hitler did a lot of actual bad things in the world and you can't, get catharsis from punishing him this way because it i think it like degrades history i mean it degrades who is going yeah hitler they have to not think of hitler as a real person they have to think of hitler as a cartoon it feels like bugs bunny is yeah. sending elmer fudd in a hitler mustache into a hole at, it's for children i yeah i really agree like i think that when I first saw this movie, the idea of killing Hitler, the idea that that would happen in this movie was not on my radar until it was happening. You know, I thought it was going to be about a movie about a near miss, like uh, Valkyrie yeah. or whatever. Right. And then when it happens, I was just like, holy shit, what the fuck? But now, like, looking back on it, it's it, it, it really is cartoonish. Like, this movie for sure doesn't solve Nazism and in, could, in fact, have contributed to the spread of it in a weird perverse way i love that you're still trying to work that theory in and i think we should keep covering that keep covering <laughs> that theory throughout the rest of the show your arguments <clears throat> are so fucking annoying to me and it's because this is a genre film this is a quentin tarantino film why are you going into this applying like rational thought because this is, this is a person who works in emotion like and not 
it is not grounded in in reality and it has never been in any of his films but every single other one of his films is a caper that happens within its own universe that does not bother the rest of us grown-ups who are who are out in the actual world right i am i am so proud to just let you grown-ups go <laughs> go not enjoy a film like this while i'm over here enjoying it for what it is i don't believe you get it with your tiny penis in one hand going yes hitler hitler kill him kill him kill him no not Hitler. Hitler, no. Hitler is not okay to be the to be look the at, like. Look at you defending Hitler. There wow. it is. There it is. Wow. <laughs> there it is indeed. Please send all of your mail to No, I I, I think that I you're absolutely right. He he deals in emotion, and this is like this is just emotionally immature. When you go downstairs into the basement of the pawn shop and the gimp comes out of that steamer trunk, it is one of the greatest reveals in all of movies, I think. The, I still think about the gimp every 10 days. I still crank it about the gimp every other day. I have never cranked it about the gimp. What? That's not my scene. <laughs> but... Like I, th- I was thinking about the gimp not very long ago, and it's not—it's not, it's not uh, the gimp doesn't come into my head because I'm like otherwise engaged with people in latex bodysuits. I mean, the gimp doesn't come into anything unless you order him to. That's right. <laughs> but you know, all those things like why am I? I saw Pulp Fiction twenty years ago. Why am I cleaning my room and suddenly asking how does the gimp breathe? <laughs> Like it's Adam and I have caught a ration of shit for talking about the gimp on our other programs. So. Oh, have you? Yeah. It's not it's not a popular uh, is there is there some revisionism now on the gimp you're not allowed to talk about the gimp? Ben's well, baseline level of concern for people would would point to him being mostly concerned about the gimp at all times. I think that the logic of it is that people can't understand the gimp to be a willing participant in that somehow. Huh. How could you not understand that? The gimp is totally into being the gimp. Right. right. Exactly. The It is the gimp that is doing the gimping, not the guy with the chopper. Yeah, he's, he's what you call a power gimp. He's power gimp. But the gimp is not... It, it, they don't take the mask off the gimp and it turns out to be Richard Nixon. <laughs> you know, and if and if they took the mask off the gimp and it was Richard Nixon, it would be ruined. You would not get you would not get the catharsis of seeing Nixon turned into the gimp. All you would lose is that the gimp was great. And the, what I'm what what my feeling is is that Inglorious Bastards could have been made and the Hitler character and it and it just didn't have to suffer this villain inflation. Right? The the person getting shot at the end could have been a bad Nazi. They could have burned down the theater and killed a bunch of bad Nazis. But it could have been like every other World War II movie where those bad Nazis are imaginary Nazis and not Goering, who was tried at Nuremberg and killed himself with a suicide capsule. Like, not actual Nazis that we know what happened to them. Because you're into an alternate universe but that alternate universe is also trying to exploit our feelings about the actual universe you know like we're being we're being twisted in the wind about our feelings about the holocaust right through the whole first act the first couple of acts well like you take a look at like black book 
which I mean, a lot of the themes are similar, right? Like the Shoshana character having to kind of play along romantically with a guy who is a talented German soldier and and that guy starting to reveal some misgivings about using his talents on behalf of the Nazis. Like that's, those are like interesting themes to explore, but Big time. the only character bleaching their pubes in this film is BJ Novak. <laughs> and like, and every time he, and, and at the end of the movie, when he's like the one commando to survive, I definitely had a lot of, like emotional feelings way more than Hitler getting shot in the face. I was like, why did BJ Novak survive? Why does he get to be in this last scene? Why didn't he die earlier? Pretty upset. You know, his father, BJ Novak's father wrote the big book of Jewish humor. I've been packing up the books in my house recently. And And you have like four copies of that one. My my mom at one point was like, you sure have a lot of books about the Jews. (laughs) I was like, I do mom. I have a kind of a little bit of a library about the Jews. Act three introduces a brand new character, and this is interesting to me, like who ends up being a pretty significant figure in the film that we don't meet up until this moment. It's uh, it's Private Zoller, and he has a meet cute, in quotes, with uh, Shosana outside of her movie yeah, theater. Yeah, Shosana. She's so pretty. <laughs> That's her name. Yeah, why are you panting? <laughs> it's Shoshana, right? I'm looking at the IMDb uh, character listing. It's Shosana. Yeah, it was it was a weird version of that name that is that is specifically it's spoken aloud in the movie a couple of times, and you're left to wonder. It's definitely Shosana. It's pronounced Shoshana though in the movie, right? Like when except, uh, except for me being right, sure. I. I I'm citing the actual film here when when she's like running across the field. What does he say? Robs, maybe you could put the uh, maybe you could put just a snippet of the sound here. Au revoir, Shoshana. Oui, Shoshana, nous pourrions. My name is Shoshana Dreyfus. Emmanuel Mimieux. There's no question, Shoshana. So they're also wrong. <laughs> I'm glad we surgically took apart her name for no reason at all. Like it has no utility at all, except for Ben to make a pedantic dunk on me for some reason. That wasn't even that funny. I'm just glad that your streak of mispronouncing character names because you read them on IMDb is unbroken, Adam. Yeah. Zoller is like the modern equivalent of the guy who doesn't take no for an answer. Yeah, but and Private Zoller does that thing that that I don't think you would see now. Um, and and what you've been get, getting at for the last hour, Ben, this um, this movie now in the context of the resurgence of cartoon Nazism within our own world. I mean, this this movie came out ten years ago. And in that 10 years, a lot has changed, but we're not sure whether or not to sympathize in some way or another with Zoller. He's a creep. He's a, but he also is portrayed as particularly in the end, like he doesn't want to watch the movie where he's actually killing other soldiers. He's disgusted by, by the violence. He is genuine in his uh, att- attraction to Shoshana, but then he reveals himself to be kind of a 
power hungry about uh, he won't accept her rejection where we're given a complicated character yeah in the form of zoller and a realistically and, complicated one unlike yeah. some of the other ones in the movie realistically complicated again at the center of a movie where a lot of the people are are being played by cartoons here is this here is this person and right up until the end i mean his final moment shoshana who should of all the people in that theater want to see him burn is struck suddenly by sympathy for him and 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 what appears to almost be affection for him and it proves to be her undoing like that's a very complicated interesting character and exchange between those two characters it's believable Shoshana is more than a one-note character. He's more than a one-note character. Here's another example of like a great movie that Tarantino was in the process of writing at one point. Right. And then he was like, but what if Goering was there? <laughs> and and this movie went went to pieces. But it, But you still see the DNA of a great movie in there somewhere. At the risk of inviting another pile on... I had never saw Shoshana's turn in that same way. I thought she was, you saw her emotionally invested in him in that way? Like, did you actually see her make that change? I saw her as like Black Widow the entire time. But but she she shoots him. He's he's died. Yeah. And then he you hear him groaning and she, I don't know, Ben. I didn't see that moment as as sympathetic. She went over to him. I mean, the unsympathetic thing to do would be standing over by the projector, put another bullet in his head. Yeah. And instead she goes over, like, she's tentative, but she goes over and, like, rolls him on his back, like, like almost, are you okay? Yeah. She's Because he's making sympathetic sound. He's making, like, little uh, uh, uh sounds. And she's affected by it. She's affected by all the time she spent with this guy who it, who she hated. He's terrible, but also like somehow. I just saw her as like not being a professional killer. Like she's hmm. she's a theater projectionist. Like if she were a person in the military, she would have executed him with the final bullet. Yeah, I mean, I think another way to read it is that a lot of the times she acquiesces to his advances because like he is dangerous, you know, right. she, he is a threat to her every time he suggests something and she demurs and then he, and then he doubles down, you know? So, you know, that's all in that last scene where he kicks right, in the door. Yeah. Right. And, and she, I think does something that, uh, is fairly common in relations between women and men, which is she kind of finds a way to deflect until uh, she can extract herself from the situation. But yeah, that moment where she walks over to him when he's like groaning on the ground is puzzling because it could mean a number of things. And I think you're right, Adam. Like it could be that she's just not born again, hard pro killer, but it also could be that she has like like so much more humanity than he does. Yeah, you're you're talking you've you've said three or four times in this movie that I'm supposed to excuse total cartoonish behavior because it's a Tarantino movie and all of a sudden it's possible that he is 
writing this character with such complexity that it's just that she's not a good killer. Like it's a Tarantino movie. She should have shot him 50 times. And so the, if she's, if she's shooting him and we're supposed to get catharsis out of his death, she should have shot him 40 times and shot him with a crossbow that had a piece of dynamite strapped to it. <laughs> well, that would be a Rambo of movie, a Quentin Tarantino film. Like just about the moment you figured out the answers, he changes the questions, I right? See. Well, and, but that's what the I'm saying. Like changing. she's having this very complicated moment. And, and Ben, you're making a point that like within abusive relationships, there are a lot of Stockholm syndrome kind of things where you find your, uh, your persecutor to suddenly be, or I mean, you gradually find your persecutor sympathetic. Well, not Uh, even in just relationships, but like, I think women walk around all the time terrified of what men might do to them. And I don't think that they've like gotten to a point where they have a romantic relationship, but I always like that part of the podcast where you, where you tell us what women's experiences are. I think that it's a I think that it's a romantic experience that they're having because he's been chasing her and she's been eluding him but it's a it's a complicated one right she does she's obviously not in love with Zoller no she's in love with Marcel she's in love with Marcel but there's an element of the the relationship in this moment that isn't cartoony that's what I'm saying this is a a portrayal of a relationship that in a different film would be, this would be really a meaty moment. What's going on? Why does she end up dying at the hands of this man when she could have escaped, when she could have killed him 50 times over? She, she ends up dying at his hand because she shows empathy. And why does she show empathy? It's not because she's empathetic toward Nazis. She's murdering them by the dozens. She made a film of herself going, ha, 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 dying of fire. She's empathetic to Zoller specifically because of what they've been through together. Do you think she ever expected to live through her plan to burn down the theater? Uh, no, absolutely not. I don't either. But and she I think didn't it's the moment she locks the door behind him that, that makes that pretty clear. But I she think- didn't expect to die after having killed him, right? When she shot him, and realized that she'd lived, that was like, no, I think you're right. I think that this was a suicide moment, but then she gets him. Yeah. She, there's no reason for her to go get herself killed. It's a, it's a really tricky little twist. And it's, and it just, it stands in bold contrast to everything else that's going on around them, including the bear Jew within 30 seconds of this scene, shooting Hitler in the face 50 times. I mean, 25 of the times he shoots him in the chest, but then the rest of them go into the face. (laughs) Right into the face. What happens, this is something I don't think the three of us can speak to. Maybe somebody that listens to our show that's super mad that we get the war stuff wrong Mm -hmm. can tell us what it looks like when you shoot somebody in the face multiple times with a machine gun. But I don't think it looks like a rubber mask being hit 50 times with like, bullet holes which is what it looks like in this movie right yeah. wouldn't there be wouldn't something else happen besides what happens there can't wait to find out <laughs> it feels like a, maybe a coroner could if we have any listeners that are coroners maybe they could write in and tell us so without Zoller, the rest of the movie doesn't happen we need him because we need his hero story to be told by the great filmmaker goebbels to tell the Zoller 
Vasily Saitsev style sniper story to show in the theater to attract the the German brass. Like this is the inciting incident that makes that final mission possible. It's Zoller. One scene we haven't really talked about much is that big scene in the middle where they go into the downstairs bar in Paris and uh, they meet uh, Bridget von Hammersmark and eventually get found out. What did you guys think of that scene? Did you think that was the cartoon side of the movie or the awesome side of the movie? It's a great moment like the beginning of the movie where the tension is palpable, where you really feel i mean when the when the ss officer reveals his presence after i mean halfway through the scene and he's been there the whole time you're just like <gasps> i mean i did the thing where i'm just thinking back at everything that's transpired because when they're interacting with the dumb drunk soldiers you're thinking to yourself they're getting away with this they're pulling this off his yeah. accent sounded weird to the soldier but they they bullied him off of the off of the case but then the SS guy comes out of the alcove and you're like reviewing everything that's happened up till that point. Right. Yeah, it's expertly done. The jig is up. If uh, if I had been that SS officer, I wouldn't have heard any of it because I'd been sitting alone in the corner of the bar listening to podcasts. Yeah, listening to podcasts and reading over the notes from your last sensitivity training. <laughs> don't don't listen in on other people's conversations. Don't judge other people's accents. It was nice to see Christian Burkel get uh, get a little break from playing Nazis in movies about Nazis. Yeah, he's the bartender. Yeah, he does a great job. I thought Michael Fassbender was the guy in this scene that I love the most. His mania, like... The depiction of a person trying to hold it together and succeeding up until the moment where, like, the dam breaks and he just can't. Like, his maniacal laugh in this scene kills me. His performative laughter is great. That Tarantino thing about not just setting up protagonist and antagonist, like, far away from each other, but bringing them together across a table is so... It feels so good to see scenes like this because it's the proximity that creates that tension. Like, they're so close. And not only are they close to each other, they're buried. Like, I think it's super important that they are underground with one exit. Yeah. yeah. It's also really fun, like, the reveal that there have been guns under the table the entire time yeah. is amazing. Like, it, it, you, like, replay the entire scene in your head in that instant and... In, in exactly the same way as when the SS guy comes out from the alcove. Like, you, you replay everything up until that point again and go like, oh my God, he's had a gun on him the entire time. Fassbender's appearance in the movie is great as the, as the like, cookie-cutter sort of uh, high and tight, like, British commando guy. When he enters the movie, you're like, hooray! Although this is weird because this feels like an additional movie that we're being introduced <laughs> to now. Yeah. Like, I love this guy. And then you see Mike Myers playing a very weird, a very weird cameo of a guy with Rosicrucia who's speaking a strange Canadian, like received pronunciation, British accent. And it's, and all of a sudden we're in Mel Brooks territory again. Like, yeah. Mike Myers is in this movie only because he ran into Quentin Tarantino at a cocktail party and said, <laughs> I want to be in your movie. 
And Tarantino was like, I've got just the role that I just made up. But Fassbender appears and we're like, oh, wow, good. A British commando. Like, that's what this caper movie needs is a British commando to come in. And he's and he kind of steals the the center of that third center of the film. And then we lose him kind of ingloriously. Oh, it was I there, I don't mind a movie where your heroes die halfway through the movie. But there's an awful lot uh, in this movie where like these subplots that if you take that whole subplot, that whole Bridget von Hammersmark subplot yeah. completely out of the movie, it doesn't change the movie at all, really. Yeah. So we just go on this like little adventure with them. I mean, f- yeah, Fassbender's introduced like about halfway through the film and he's dead like half an hour later. Yeah. So we go on a little walk through the woods with them, and it's pleasing. Mm-hmm. Um, this is Tarantino past his, past the point in his career where anybody can tell him anything, and I guess there never was in his career a point where people would have edited him, right? That's the genius of his career, right? He yeah. went from working at a video store to being uh, the uh, auteur. He got Denzel Washington to argue with the guy over which Silver Surfer was the best, and... <laughs> The rest is history. <laughs> but, but you know, but I, so I loved that vignette. I loved Fassbender's appearance. Um, you know, I loved Diane Kruger. In 2009, this is like pre-Fassbender, Fassbender too. Like he still got some good credits. He had yet to make the Steve Jobs movie or be in the Alien prequel films. Like, yeah, he wasn't like a leading man yet. Yeah. So being in the Alien prequel films and making a movie about Steve Jobs are enough to make a man a leading man these days? In addition to like all the X-Men films he was in, like oh. he would go on to like become Michael Fassbender, what? the one that we know now. But in 2009, he, he doesn't read as big movie star. I don't know him. So, I'm, so he's in the X-Men movies? Is he Spider-Man? No. Is he Batman? He's, uh, he's Magnet Man, right? He's Magnet Man? Yeah. yeah, Magneto. Yeah, Magneto is uh, he's is, Magnet Man from the Mega Man video game series. <laughs> Magneto is is played by uh, by uh, Oldie McOld. Well, they uh, they did like a series of prequels in which he plays young Magnet Man. Oh. Once again, I regret speaking up. <laughs> <laughs> Were the Wonder prequels good? how different this film is if he plays Aldo Rain instead of Brad Pitt. Whoa. Oh, come on now. That's a good movie. That's a gooder movie. Maybe, but maybe not. I feel like Brad Pitt's like hillbilly accent is genuine, right? Like he was born in Oklahoma. As in it's happening? Yeah. No, no, no. I don't think it's I don't think it's genuine <laughs> in that sense. But like he's coming at a southern accent, unlike a lot of his bad accents. He's coming at a southern <laughs> accent with some with some personal experience or expertise. He can do southerner because he identifies as a Southerner. But somehow I felt like this was not an authentic Southern character. Not an authentic Appalachian character. Did How did you guys read it? I mean, he definitely read as a guy, a white guy who would tell you about how he's part Apache. You know? <laughs> it's a hell of a combination. Right? I think I feel about Brad Pitt the way that Ben feels about Eli Roth. <laughs> I think that's... When I'm when Brad Pitt appeared on the screen, you were like, Bleh. yeah, a little bit. 
because I feel like if I if I were just not even in a movie now, if I were just at a diner somewhere, and I and th- that guy walked in and sat down next to me and started talking, I would say, "Am I on candid camera? Like, <laughs> is this a put on? Because you're not a real thing." If Brad Pitt was playing the character from Fury in this film, okay, I think I'm on board. Okay, because then all of a sudden, what you've done is you've take you've taken a huge actor in Brad Pitt and you've you faded him behind the cartoon that is the rest of the bastards in a really interesting way. But in cartooning the shit out of him, like he diminishes all the rest of the bastards underneath his flour battered and fried crust of a, uh, of an accent. I'm with you on this, <laughs> you know, like I think I would like a little less of him out front. And I think it, it would make Brad Pitt's character more interesting if he were less like if there was a dab Clown of pathos mirror. in his character at all. Yeah. But imagine the cruelty their brothers endured at our hands. I think the film wants you to feel like your characters are in danger, but whenever I'm with him, I never feel like I'm in danger. Like he's he exudes that kind of confidence. Even toward the end, we're in the movie theater and people are getting made left and right. And he's not dropping that fucking accent and he's got the, the yeah, goofy white tuxedo. Like, I want to feel in maximum danger in that scene. And there's something about his performance that makes it feel a little safe. Right, because you never know in the rest of the scenes, you never know whether or not Hans Landa knows as much as we know. And so all those, uh, and and that's true in the in the underground uh, bar scene too. That, that great tension of feeling like the jig kind of feels like maybe it's up but everybody's still playing along and maybe they're going to get away with it but that scene in the opera where brad pitt is just like failing to speak italian and just like gritting his teeth there's no obviously hans landa i mean hans landa has already revealed that he knows the whole story right but we don't get there's no fun in it because I mean, the fun would be if pistols came out and they just started shooting at each other. If they sat there and just glared at each other like, I know, you know, but we're at a cocktail party. But that, but that we never get that. They actually part ways as though like, okay, well, great, nice meeting you in a way that served neither character, really. I'm on with you. I'm on board with you, though. If, if, if we had a different bad Brad Pitt, if we had Fury Brad Pitt. But the problem is if we had Fury Brad Pitt, then the cartoon then the only thing cartoonish in the movie at that point would be Hitler. So we'd have like a movie where everyone else was acting and then we cut to goofball Hitler. Yeah. We cut to like a blazing saddles for, for all those scenes. And that's what I'm saying. There's a great movie in here. Yeah. It's just the revisionism story out and Brad Pitt does does a better job. Like the 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 Jewish commandos are not some invincible heroes that are somehow able. I mean, we've watched other movies about the French Resistance, where where the sense is that if you have your shoelaces tied wrong, you're going to get found out. But somehow, this group of six guys, like what, like where do they eat at night? They don't appear to have sleeping bags. Like, where, how are they roaming the French country? I mean, I know this is the pedantry that makes me... me That's one-star pedantry this, right This there. makes me unfun. But, like, <laughs> where are... 
you just named the podcast of uh, of of the three movies that you like. This is what makes me unfun. Yeah, with John Roderick. But like, where? How are they roaming the world? How does everyone? How does Hitler know about these guys? And yet, we're never they. They're never shown eating a sandwich or anything. Like who, how are they, how do they exist? If you just take that BS out of it, out so of the I, movie. If, if they showed them eating a sandwich, I might honestly take Hitler's side, you know? Well, but if they, if you show them like going up to a little, a little country house and being like, cause that's who should know about them, right? Right. The little people in the villages in France. They should, should uh, they should spend some time with the Lepidites. The Lepidites. They've got an ax to grind. Yeah, we should we should see little moments like that where they walk through a town dressed as peasants and some Frenchman goes, oh, it is the bear Jew, but not hit, not Hitler going like the bear Jew. Blah! Adam is really thinking hard. I can smell the smoke <laughs> grinding the gears. I never would have expected to agree with you that in a three-hour film we could use a little more interstitial uh, character development or just like the connective tissue between scenes that actually shows how these people operate and move from place to place. We aren't given that. We're The rules of, of this film universe don't give us that chance. We We see their... Their ability to move throughout Nazi-occupied France easily, up until the point where they actually have to interact with other people. And I think if I would think we could have gotten that and kept the movie under three hours by losing this this thing that I am never going to stop objecting to, which is like, tell me what about the what about the revisionism? What about that whole story? Would you keep? What about that story makes this a better movie? than the same movie just without that. We keep the theater, we just have some smaller Germans in it, and we keep all like the other- shorter in stature, you mean? Just like like not famous Germans, but like we can make up some, we can have some SS colonels, yeah. we can have a bunch of baddies, but the war doesn't end in 44 and Hitler doesn't get shot in the face. I don't know Quentin Tarantino as a person, but he proje- he projects. A, I got to introduce you guys. I think you get along great. <laughs> he projects a character of himself into the world that would lead me to believe that Quentin Tarantino wanted to make the movie where we killed Hitler and right. killed him specifically in this way. Right, and that is why it happened. Right, it's, right. It's, it's the, the vanity of his his filmmaker. But he didn't start out. I'm, what I'm saying is he didn't start out to do that. He did not say I'm going to make a movie where we shoot Hitler. He started off saying I'm going to remake the Dirty Dozen, and he got this let's kill Hitler thing seven years later. I don't know if I. I mean, can we? Is that provable? It, through research that we should have done? No, but I... But I, I feel like that's <laughs> where you it. start. I feel it. Like, it legendarily, he started with Once Upon a Time in Nazi-occupied France, but I wonder if shooting Hitler in the face wasn't the very second thing he had on his outline. I mean, that's like the log line of the film, right? Well, the, the theater explode. All the Nazis burn up in it. But, uh... But Hans Landa has made a deal. He's talked on the phone to uh, to the British uh, generals running Operation Kino, and the last little bit of the movie is this is this scene where they drive to the border and they're gonna 
the, you know, he's he's going to turn himself in to Aldo Rain and BJ Novak. Hateful. I yeah, like this scene felt so gratuitous to me. I don't know that it adds anything to the movie. Here's the movie. The deal is made, which is genius. This is genius. This right. scene is great. I'm going to end the war in exchange for all of this stuff. And we watch it go down and we're all gritting at the idea that he's going to have his own. He's going to get provided a house. We know there's historic precedent for this, right? right? That Nazis made deals. They ended up living comfortable lives in the United States. Most of them in Nantucket. Yeah, right. Or or, or working for the space program. Mm-hmm. Um, brilliant That's setup. what the N in NASA stands for, right? Nazi, Nazi Air and Space Museum. Yeah. I don't think there's a museum in NASA. I love all our friends at NASA. I feel immediately <laughs> terrible for that. <laughs> they know. They know. Yeah. They look at the pictures on the walls. But then it fails. His plan fails. This is the movie. This is what any movie, this is a good movie. This is any movie that we would, if, if this had happened, if he had made that deal and then been double-crossed, and the war had not ended. Some somehow this could have been brought into the realm of halfway decent movies, right? Like that hail mary of like, what if I could turn coat and have it be a come up for me, and also the end of the war? Like that's a that's an amazing play to try and make, but also one that is bound to fail, right? And super tantalizing to us, like yeah. what, what what we're robbed of is that feeling of like. <gasps> That could have just worked and then watching it fail again, which yeah. is a thing that we always that in World War Two movies is a total trope. Right. What if Hitler were killed in the bunker? Oh, it failed. What you know, each that's that's where this fantasy history stuff works on an audience is that you think, oh, what if? But it's never you're never given it. I would have preferred if Landa didn't plant his own dynamite. I would have preferred his actions to be more desperate toward the end but because he was involved in he was also involved in blowing up the movie theater yeah there's actually three plots to kill hitler yeah it was less satisfying when he finally made the turn because i would have preferred his position to be more desperate than participatory right i mean i i do feel like we're in the weeds now trying to make sense out of a out of a thing that is wasn't intended to have sense made of it. Right. Um, and I guess, you know, I guess that's where I run out of if this, if we were back in Sicario times, I would sit <laughs> and argue about this with you guys until I was blue in the face. But I, I have arrived at the point in, in, in glorious bastards where I have to, what I have to surrender. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that on its face, this is a pretty offensive concept as a movie. But if you can set aside all of that and watch it as a filmmaker at the height of his powers in terms of directing actors and directing the camera and celebrating genre and celebrating the techniques of cinema, like there's a lot to like here. What offends you about this movie? That is a very specific word to use. In that context, revisionism is offensive when deployed in this way. Is that what you're arguing? Yeah, it turns it turns, you know, a group of people that perpetrated one of the worst crimes in human history into a bunch of cartoon characters to bonk on the head. And I think that, like, on paper, it's kind of offensive. 
I'm ready to rate the film. What about you guys? Wow, Adam's not having it. He throws his he throws his kid leather gloves down in the dirt. <laughs> I agree with many of your points about how this film feels. Wait a minute, what's our rating system? You don't just launch in. Oh wait, you're doing it. Oh, I'm sorry, bro. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, John, there's a whole preamble. Oh, We've done like 60 episodes know, of this show. I know. Now I feel so dumb because because I because you were like ramping up. Okay, I'm stepping back out. All right. Refocus I'm the I'm going to take my Linus blanket to the center right. of the stage. Okay. <laughs> wait for the spotlight to appear. <laughs> What's the true meaning of Christmas, Adam? I totally grasp your arguments against how this film makes you feel. But my counterpoint to that is I feel like I might be... Uh, I might be less of a good person than either of you because I actually do enjoy the revenge aspect of this film. I am someone who holds grudges and relishes uh, revenge where I can find it in real life. This film is masturbation. Like it is, it is a fantasy and I felt good at the end of it. I felt good watching Hitler get shot in the face. I felt good watching all of these people die. Sometimes it feels good to masturbate. And this is <laughs> And this is that film. Like this is that film. I love all of the like exquisitely portrayed tensions throughout the film. I loved how sceney this film was. Like this is maybe not Quentin Tarantino's best film, but like it's it's a very confident Quentin Tarantino film. And that might have its own downside too. Like I feel like he could use an editor in some areas for reasons that the both of you have been good at criticizing him for. The proximity to the enemy that you live in throughout this film, I feel like is great. I felt very a great amount of tension throughout the film, and I felt like in that way, uh, it succeeds. That seems like a very difficult thing to sustain for as long as the film is. And by the time you finally get over that edge, guys... By the, by the time you finally pop, feels great. I felt great at the end of this film. As far as the rating system goes for the film, there's something that I feel like is the most emblematic of a Quentin Tarantino film. Something that is uh, anachronistic is Bridget Von Hammersmark. She's in that basement scene with Fassbender. She takes a bullet. Later on, uh, they're yanking the bullet out of her and... Aldo Rain has given her the business about the fucked up situation. And later on, in the climactic scene, she's wearing a high-heeled cast. A high-heeled cast feels like the most Quentin Tarantino-style <laughs> thing, right? It's a thing you need, but it's a little bit perverted and stylish in a way that you're not sure is real. Like, I'm not sure a high-heeled cast has ever existed before. But in this film, it makes sense. In this film's reality, it's believable. And so for Inglorious Bastards, like that is the most emblematic thing of this film. Like a high-heeled cast is Inglorious Bastards. And I loved the film and I enjoyed its revenge. And I'm giving it uh, four thigh-high high-heeled casts. I'm I'm excited for you to rain down <laughs> awful reviews upon me. Expend all remaining reviews on your paws. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a lovely fucking war, Adam. <laughs> I think for Christoph Waltz alone, like, like makes it a forecast film. He's just incredible. 
you know, there's a lot about this film that I like, and and watching it as a popcorn movie is fun. I agree with you. Like, I don't think it's objectively offensive. I think it's subjectively offensive. If you can watch it as like a fun revenge movie that uh, that plays with historical uh, facts and 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 bends them to to have a, a rollicking good time. I think it is a fun movie. And like, I, I have been able to watch it that way before, and I'm sure I will be again. I'm going to review this in the terms of this podcast. And I think that from that perspective, its value is fairly limited. And while I love the performances in this movie, excepting Eli Roth, uh, and while I love the way the camera moves and the, you know, the shot compositions, the lighting, all of that stuff is fucking incredible. And I, you know, I love all of the, the earned confidence that Tarantino has in just like fucking around and having Sam Jackson do a voiceover all of a sudden for no reason about like how film is super flammable or whatever. Um, you know, and, and as a celebration of film as a, as an art form and genre films in particular, this is great. Uh, but you know, from a historical perspective, I think it's, uh, and especially now, like I just don't, I don't know that it's doing a lot of good in the world. Art that defends and supports the status quo of like, uh, we, we won that thing and that it's not something we have to worry about anymore, but we can, gleefully you know delight in shooting hitler in the face just for funsies uh i think that's actually not a great message to put out there and uh i think i'm gonna have to come out right in the middle uh, i think it's two and a half high-heeled casts and maybe that that half a cast still has a foot kind of in it and bleeding ben I don't want us to argue reviews against each other. <laughs> like, that's not part of what we do on the show. But I really sincerely felt that this film was angry and not making the Nazis cartoonish. We are in deep, deep disagreement about the way that these people are portrayed in this film. And I don't know if we're like... I don't want to be convinced and I don't want to convince you, but I think one thing you said in your review was interesting in that like you're grading this film from a friendly fire perspective. Does it matter at all the way a film wants to be seen? Um, it matters if it succeeds or fails in the way it wants to be seen. And hmm. I, I mean, like I think back on the time I saw it in the theaters for the first time, not knowing anything about what was going to happen in it. And wondering whether any of what was being portrayed initially was, you know, had basis in fact. And, you know, I think that that's something that you have to be pretty careful with if you're making a piece of art for mass consumption. I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's just hard. Cause like I, I def I see your side of this argument, but I just do not see the cartoon. I see it as a film making a case for, shooting Nazis in the face and scalping them. And yeah. like, I, I, I guess I just don't see, I, I don't see that as being lightly taken. Yeah. I'm also less, uh, I, I have less, um, vengeance in my heart than you do. I think. 
I think that's a big, big part of our of our differing opinions on the film. What about you, John? What's your take? Oh, I have a lot of vengeance in my heart. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, there were Jewish commando squads in World War II, uh, recruited by the British from the Jews that were already in Palestine. And they operated primarily in Palestine and in North Africa and uh, to a certain extent in Italy. There wasn't really a Jewish assassin hit squad that got parachuted into occupied France or Germany, but that is tantalizing, right? That is a tantalizing conceit. Why wasn't there? It's kind of brilliant. Uh, There wasn't probably because that would have been really hard. There wasn't any kind of roving 14-man assassin squad uh, parachuted behind the lines because they couldn't have survived. It was too, it was impossible, but it's tantalizing. When I was a kid, and I don't know, probably when Ben was a kid, he was um, he was out in the woods with the other boys playing Little House on the Prairie. But when I was a kid, <laughs> we played war, right? That was the number one thing we did, play war. We went out every afternoon with our guns and we made up a story where we divided into teams good guys and bad guys and often it was cowboys and indians and often it was americans and nazis and usually it was a sort of guns of navarone style story we're we have a fort you're assaulting the fort we have a we have a prison and you're breaking somebody out of the prison and these are these were games that you know fourth graders fifth graders could could come up with um and a lot of the war movies that we watch are just blown up versions of that, right? Where grownups finally have the power to put cameras and lights together to make a version of this thing that they were playing when they were kids, which is, okay, here's the fort, you guys go and we'll defend it and we're the bad guys this time. So we have all these elements and Tarantino is a great filmmaker. He proves it time and again in this movie where he can put together 10 or 12 minutes of just impeccable film. He can also like intentionally lose you and win you back. He does that, right? I'm not a stranger to that either. In Pulp Fiction, he lost me four different times, but he he won me back every time. But this is a this movie feels like a Frankenstein. And leaving aside the revisionism for a second, there are more good scenes in this movie than bad. There are more good moments that really like put you in it that make you feel something actually meaningful, which is that feeling of being in disguise behind the lines and terrified of being discovered. And there's someone there that you're, that you're almost certain knows your true story, but they're not revealing it yet, and they're letting you leave? Why would they let you leave? You know, they are playing a larger chess game. I mean, that's all crazy good, good filmmaking. And I think within a World War II context, really takes you to a place that a lot of films don't take you in World War II, which is, what did it feel like to be a, a Jew in disguise in France? Um, and, and because it's Tarantino, a Jew in disguise in France who happens to be 
in daily contact with the head of the Gestapo, right? I mean, that wouldn't, you wouldn't need that. You could just be a Jew in disguise in France being looked at askance by the shopkeepers. Tarantino makes it the head of the Gestapo. That's fine. I'm, I'm there with that. And that's like, feels like important even. But he, his overreach and his untetheredness, I, 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 I do feel like it treads into offensive. And it's not that I don't have vengeance in my heart. I want to see cartoon Nazis immolated on the regular. I just feel like to take the top 10 Nazis that we all know by name and put them in your movie to kill them for jack-offs, it's, it's offensive primarily because it's unnecessary. I mean, there's not a single one of us walked out of that theater thinking, what if the war had ended in 44 under these interesting, um, under this interesting uh, historical revisionism? Like, that's not what you leave with. You leave with like a big stain on the front of your pants because you got to see Hitler killed. And that is something that even in fifth grade, my friends and I would not have dared do in our game. We would not have dared kill Hitler ourselves because in a way it takes all the fun out of the game. So I cannot, I can give three of the movies within this movie four and a half stars, <laughs> right? I what? Give, I give Wentz, oh, I'm sorry. Our stars. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I can give three of, the, well, this is the problem, right? Because in order to use a high-heeled cast as a rating, I have to acknowledge the existence of that movie. But like, I'm, uh, there are so many movies that would get a five whatever rating from me in this movie or a four and a half rating. But then there are these ones that get a, get a one star or I'm sorry, a one high-heeled cast it's like you don't even listen. I love you, and I love your rating system. I'm just a I'm just a product of a of a of a less imaginative time. I was, I was raised I'm in a, a time. I'm a vengeful person. There John. were you only need to start getting this right. There were only three television stations when I was a kid, Adam. I don't have the the emotional flexibility that you do. I keep trying to turn on Wide World of Sports. So I, I have to. I ha I guess I have to average them out, and average them out with with the the capper being this unnecessary the unnecessariness of the failure because the successes are so great that the failure just seems like i mean you could have you could have a movie that was that was an overall success that had five failures in it but i don't see how you can have five great movies that is that's in the carapace of a failure without having to take some hits. So I'm gonna give it, yeah, two and a half high-heeled casts. And I'm not even gonna attend, uh, uh, like addenda that rating with an, with an additional fun secondary rating. It's just a two and a half high-heeled casts with a... With a period at the end. With a period. Like, yeah. yeah. Wow. Wow. I imagine you are going to be just as opinionated about your guy, John. Did you have a guy in Inglorious Bastards? I've already talked about him a little bit. It's BJ Novak. <laughs> just because I know that he's rich from that television show and more. He gets to do what he wants in life. 
He dissed John Hodgman right in front of me. Oh, no. Yeah, dissed him. You can't do that. No, it was one of those like, is John Hodgman, or no, I, uh, the question was, what do you think of John Hodgman's stand-up comedy? And BJ Novak said, oh, is John Hodgman a comedian? Mm. Oh, man. Pretty mm. cold burn on a friend of mine. So he's my, he's my guy with a bullet. <laughs> you hear that, Novak? <laughs> <laughs> he's a big fan of the show. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure he's listening. He's like, I'm going to stop donating to that on Max FunCon. He's been listening to the program, and then he looks straight into a camera that happened to be following him. <laughs> he's the only person I've seen successfully try to portray Atomize. He's, yeah. he's a really talented actor at the end of the day. <laughs> My guy is uh, Bridget von Hammersmark. Mm. Um, she's one of the, uh, you know, maybe a bit of a cheat since she's such a, a foreground character. But uh, there's so many times when it seems like she's in a, uh, an unsolvable jam. And just through, like, force of will, she, she solves a problem or, or, or gets them out of a scrape or whatever. And I don't know. I, I, I just loved... I loved that character. I, I kind of wanted to just see a, a movie about her, like a, a German star that chooses to become a spy for the Allies and, and like, you know, liaises with soldiers and has uh, jocular meetings in underground bars in Paris. Um, where's that movie, man? She does that really interesting thing, which is uh, she's agreeable and fun when surrounded by the most hateable people. Right, and she's like an awesome spy. Like she does not panic. Yeah. She she's getting a finger jammed into her bullet hole and still is like about the mission. You know, she doesn't make it about herself. She makes it about winning the war. Yeah, that sounds like you. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to see a movie about her. I, I'm not saying she's me. Everyone that you talk about is you, Ben. Ben and Adam are fighting again. <laughs> Speaking of fingers, my guy is the Michael Fassbender character, Archie Hickox. Oh, yeah. Uh, my favorite scene in the film is in that fourth act. It's in the, it's in the cellar bar. And he is white-knuckling it through this scene. His accent is a little off. His cover story is flimsy. He's making it work conversationally, though. He's stiff upper lipping it. The tension in this scene is exquisite, but what lets him down is the three fingers when he asks for three clean glasses and he fails to do the German three, which involves the thumb and instead does the middle three fingers. See, I thought that was for sure going to be your rating system. The three fingers. <laughs> yeah, but then that... that How that, many three fingers? Yeah, there's a lot it? of multiplication involved there. Uh -huh. I, yeah. I, did, I, I give this movie... 12 16, fingers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's my favorite scene in the film, my favorite uh, performance in the film, if it's not going to be Christoph Waltz. I thought he was just totally great and really something that felt familiar to me, which is like, you do everything, quote unquote, right, and then some stupid fucking thing trips you up, like getting the fingers wrong. And that is the reason that everyone dies in the scene. Mm-hmm. A side story to that, Ben and I were recently out of town and we uh, we were like walking into a restaurant and the, the person at the at the booth is like, how many people? And we had three people. And there was a pregnancy in the moment where I thought to give the German three and I decided against it. 
and went with the middle three fingers three, not thinking that German three might be a really bad code for Nazi shit. But I will never forget. So you were kind of virtue signaling when you put gave him the, the middle three fingers. I think it's really fun that there's a trivial moment in a film that you can take in your life forever. And the way that they make the three in this film is one of those things that I'll never forget. The thing is that in America, that three with the thumb up actually is signaling that you're a bottom. (laughs) (laughs) So it's a different thing in in the United States. Oh, yeah? Yeah. So, I mean, I would if I were you, I'd continue to make it that way. I'm sure you like that. You're just telling a different story than you think. Yeah. Yeah. All you see is gimps. (laughs) (laughs) Voluntary gimps. Gimps that are in it for the gimp, not for the not for the the gimpo. Gimper. Well, uh, Ben, what do you say you unzip the next film on the list for Friendly Fire? Get yeah. him out of the uh, get him out of the box. Let me uh, let me work this uh, this padlock here. Uh, <laughs> we have hit our World War II limit, so I have sorted the list where all of the World War II films are off of. Uh, out of consideration, and uh, we have a randomized 100-plus movies of non-World War II films to choose from. There, We have more than 100 non-World War II movies. That's great. The list is currently 176 movies long. Uh, incidentally, that's the number of episodes in Star Trek The Next Generation. Every once in a while, I start to feel good about this <laughs> relationship between us, and then doesn't take long <laughs> i see uh, i see you no longer have your rolling tray oh i do hang on it's right over here adam saw me starting to build this little circle the wagons style uh <laughs> i was putting my phone and the mouse and some other things i love your instinct was to put the tray on top of the keyboard <laughs> as if there was a chance that wouldn't stop the recording <laughs> I, I thought of that as soon as i started to do it i was way like, to put oh, everything minute. on the line wait a minute I definitely would touch the space bar there. Okay, here we go. There it goes, toward the gravity well of the tray. Still rolling. And it comes up. 44. 44 is an Oliver Stone film from 1986 about the El Salvador Revolution. It's Salvador. Wow. Wow. We're going to get into some ideology here. How about following Quentin Tarantino with Oliver Stone? Yeah. Are you guys ready to hear me get all pedantic about the 80s? <laughs> oh, I'm going to I'm going to talk about Casper Weinberger all afternoon. Man, that's a uh, I I remember really liking that movie when I saw it. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how it how it holds up. It'll it'll be pre right-wing Twitter asshole James Woods james woods Ooh. oh are you gonna have a super duper revisionist take on him like you do <laughs> all the other right-wing assholes that revealed themselves over time if only james woods tapped a knife on on ben's bedroom window he would engender some sympathy <laughs> isn't the story with james woods that he like personally reported a bunch of the 9-11 hijackers to the fbi and kind of got yeah Kind of, kind of got blown off. What? Yeah, that's that's a story. Man. He, how did he know them? He like he was like on a flight and like 
a, a couple of the people that went on to hijack one of the World Trade Center planes was were like taking notes and and like keeping track of how things worked. He was on like the Muhammad Atta practice oh, run no way. and like made him. Whoa! I'm gonna have to look that up. Yeah, so we'll probably end up talking mostly about 9-11 <laughs> during the next episode. Well, he's he's just uh, supposed to take pictures in this movie, right? Yeah, mm. yeah, that's right. Um, well, that'll be uh, next week on Friendly Fire. Uh, I suppose we'll let Rob's, 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 Rob's take it from here. But in the meantime, for John Roderick and Adam Pranica, I've been Ben Harrison. To the victor, go the spoiler alerts. Friendly Fire is a Maximum Fun podcast hosted by Ben Harrison, Adam Pranica, and John Roderick. It's produced and edited by me, Rob Schulte. Our logo art is by Nick Dittmar. And our theme music is War by Edwin Starr, courtesy of Stone Agate Music. Use the hashtag FriendlyFire when posting about the show on your social media platform of choice. We've got Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, a lot of people to talk about these episodes with. You can find Ben on Twitter at BenjaminAHR. Adam is at CutForTime. John is at John Roderick. And I'm at Rob K. Schulte. You can support the show financially by going to MaximumFun.org slash donate. Or you can leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We appreciate all of the support, and we'll see you next week. out the gimp. I think the gimp's sleeping. Well, I guess you just have to go wake him up now, won't you? MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.